As we turn our eyes upon Jesus this morning, let us also turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 19. John chapter 19. The title of my message this morning is Authority Figures. And we all have authority figures in our lives. Some of us are authority figures. At times, we don't like to have authority figures in our lives. But we find ourselves towards the end of the interrogation here by Pilate. And the crowd is getting more riled up. The religious leaders are putting on the pressure. And Pilate is beginning to cave. And the fear of man is on display. Various authority figures are present or represented. There's Pilate as governor. There's the Roman soldiers to keep order. And these represent proud and rebellious and the wicked in the world. Then we have the Jewish leaders who were to teach the people. And the temple soldiers were there to keep order. And here as well, we have pride and tradition over Scripture and blind guides leading the blind. And then in the midst of all of this, we have the authority, Jesus Christ, the sovereign ruler over all, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the humble servants and our Savior and our Lord. Read with me or follow along chapter 19, verse 1, before we get to the scripture we are in this morning. Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and put a purple robe on him. And they began to come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews, and to give him slaps in the face. Pilate came out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Jesus then came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man! So when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out saying, Crucify! Crucify! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and by that law he ought to die because he made himself out to be the Son of God. And that's where we start this morning in this text with a demonstrative declaration. A demonstrative declaration. Indeed, the Son of God standing before them. As I ask the Lord to help me this morning. The Jews... Jewish leaders 
saying that they have a law, and indeed they did, and a law that someone ought to die because they say that they are God, and Jesus saying he is the Son of God. They finally get to the real reason for their hostility towards Jesus. And it was not a hostility that grew overnight, we understand. They had approximately three years to build in their bitterness, in their jealousy, and in their hostility towards Jesus Christ. It was for this claim, being the Son of God, that the Sanhedrin voted to condemn him. I'll read these texts for you. I'll give them to you so you know where they are. If you're fast enough, you may turn with me. Mark 14, 61 through 64, and then Matthew 27, 39 through 44. Going to Mark first just to read these for us this morning. 61 through 64 of chapter 14. But he kept silent and did not answer. Again, the high priest was questioning him and saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus said, I am. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Tearing his clothes, the high priest said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. How does it seem to you? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. And they began to, to spit at him and to blindfold him and to beat him with their fists and to say to him, prophesy. And the officers received him with slaps in the face. This, of course, before he stood before Pilate. And then in Matthew ch chapter 27 and in verse 39, <clears throat> Of Matthew, and they were those passing by were hurling abuses at him. This is when Jesus indeed was on the cross, wagging their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the, the king of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now. If he delights in him, for he said, I am the Son of God. So indeed, we have this declaration by Jesus Christ. And as we go back to John, we see that they were charging him or attempting to charge him for violating the law, for blasphemy. The problem is, though, is that he, is that what Jesus said was actually true. He is the Son of God. And he had proved that numerous times in the Gospel of John. We have covered it over and over, the claims of deity by Jesus Christ and what he did. Indeed, he is the Son of God. They were charging him with blasphemy even though what Jesus was saying was true. 
They did not let Pilate know about their backroom deal, however, to make this charge and that their decision was already made. The decision of the the Jewish leaders who had already abused Jesus, their decision was that he would die already. But they didn't necessarily let Pilate know of their decision. They just said he ought to die. Pilate had to give his consent first. He had to give the order. Their minds, though, were already made up. They just needed to have Pilate say yes. So they tell Pilate with emphasis, we have a law, Pilate. Just as Pilate said to them with emphasis, you take him and crucify him. Whatever is the case with you Roman people, we follow the law and we have a law. This is the reference to the law of blasphemy in Leviticus chapter 24, verse 16. I'll just read it for you. Leviticus 24 and verse 16. The one who blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall certainly stone him. The alien as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. And again, we recall that they could not do this at this time with the Romans in charge. The Romans had to do their do the execution, and that was by way of crucifixion. And they say here in John, by that law, he ought to die because he made himself out to be the Son of God. Pilate could find no guilt in him. We recall that he says this three times, I believe it was. Now that the Jewish leaders say this, he's listening more intently. Okay, you're saying he's saying this, and he violated this law. So now we see a bit of a a switch here with Pilate, at least his listening. Verse 8, we see what happens. This is our second point, distressing and Disconcerting. This was distressing and disconcerting to Pilate. Verse 8, Therefore, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. Or as uh, it's the first aorist passive, he was afraid even more. He was already afraid, but this caused him to have even more fear. It's like when you're scared, Or you're afraid and then something else happens and he causes you even more fear. Recall that his wife had something to say in Matthew 27. She said to him, by way of bringing a message to Pilate, have nothing to do with this righteous man. For last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. So here he has his wife saying this, Here he has Jesus saying what he said in the previous verses. And there he has the Jewish leaders saying these things. And Pilate was afraid and now he is more afraid. Pilate apparently, as a Roman, was superstitious. Perhaps he heard about Jesus before this. Now he hears that the Jews are making a claim about what Jesus says. And what Jesus said to Pilate in verse 36. 
of of chapter 18, when Jesus said to him, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. So all of these statements being made to Pilate, plus Pilate's knowledge and his upbringing, all brought to the table. The Romans knew of stories and various myths of gods or offsprings of gods appearing as men. The divine men, as they were called, were part of the belief system at this time. All of these things happening at once evidently pressed even more upon Pilate. In verse 9, And he, being Pilate, entered into the praetorium again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave no answer. Where are you from? It's an interesting question, considering that Luke lets us know that Pilate knew where Jesus was from as far as being from Galilee. So it wasn't like, what town were you from? Or where were you born? Or what region are you from? It's way more than that. Where are you from? Now that Pilate realizes the divine claims of Jesus, Pilate realizes he's not dealing with an ordinary man here. He just had Jesus scourged, as we studied before, as some theologians hold to the position which makes a great argument for that, that there was a a scourging and then presented for for the crowd, and then there was the more uh, heavy scourging that leads with, that goes along with the crucifixion. So if that indeed is the case, he already had Jesus scourged. He's hearing all of these things. And these divine claims. And he was very afraid. And that is perfectly understandable, considering the position that he's in and considering everything that is going on and who indeed is standing right before him. The problem, however is who or what Pilate feared. Who or what Pilate feared. Consider this. He feared the Jews first. Since he feared man, he did not release Jesus after he was acquitted. I find no guilt in him, I find no guilt in him, I find no guilt in him. Yet, he feared man, so Jesus did not get released. Secondly, he feared Jesus, but not a fear of a regenerate heart. Not the type of fear that a Christian has. He had a superstitious type of fear. Yet, after Jesus spoke about God's authority over Pilate, Pilate again tried to release Jesus. And we'll see that in the next few verses. So Pilate feared the Jews, the Jewish leaders. He feared Jesus. Pilate also feared Caesar. Consider the following here from Reverend Richard Phillips. He says, 
The emperor at this time was the unstable Tiberius Caesar, who was especially suspicious of disloyalty in his servants. This made Pilate susceptible to the threat that the crowd now leveled. The Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. This was a serious threat that Pilate was bound to fear. We know that the Jews had sent complaints to Caesar in the past concerning Pilate. But in this case, word would be sent to the paranoid emperor that Pilate was defending a seditious rebel who set himself up as king in opposition to Rome. Moreover, given what we know about the general corruption of Pilate's regime, he probably feared any scrutiny that might dig up problems in his government that would be awkward to explain. Some scholars think that this term, Caesar's friend, marks a special official status that Pilate enjoyed. But even if this was only a general term, as is more likely, a report that Pilate was not serving the emperor's interest jeopardized not only his position, but his life. Hearing this threat, Pilate made no more efforts to free Jesus. As J.C. Ryle would say, he would rather connive at a murderer to please the Jews than allow himself to be charged with neglect of imperial interest and unfriendliness to Caesar. So here we have Pilate, a fearful man, uh, and a man of, that is afraid of what's going on. He fears the Jewish leaders. He had a fear towards Jesus. He feared Caesar. But again, his fear of Jesus was not a godly fear. Pilate's fear of man was a sinful fear. We as Christians are to have and to cultivate a godly, biblical, reverent fear of the Lord in contrast to what the type of fear that Pilate had. It was John Murray who said, the fear of God is the soul of godliness. We are to fear God because he is holy and he is opposed to all sin. The fear of God is something implanted in our hearts by God. And we see that in Jeremiah. I'll just read this for us this morning. Jeremiah 32 and 38 through 41. Jeremiah 32, 38 through 41. <clears throat> 38 through 41. They shall be my people, and I will be their God, and I will give them one heart and one way. God says, my people, I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me always for their own good and for the good of their children after them. I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do, to do them good, and I will put the fear of me, says God, the fear of me in their hearts, so that they will not turn away from me. This type of fear, brothers and sisters, is the fear of God that is implanted in our hearts, and it is one that we must cultivate as we walk before our God. 
It is Proverbs 16, verse 6 that says, By the fear of the Lord, one keeps away from evil. And it is by, uh, because the fear of God, that we are able to resist temptation to sin. Also, when we fear God and when we do not fear man, we will not shrink back in our witness of the gospel of Jesus Christ before God and before man. Could the fear of man be the main reason we do not evangelize as we should? What does Jesus say in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28? Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And that indeed, that him is the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is our example of one who feared God the Father and did not fear man. Why did he not answer Pilate at this point? Why did he remain silent? Uncertain practically for us. Would Pilate have understood even? Would he have believed it anyway? The Lord Jesus would have been casting pearls before swine. Augustine sees this as fulfilling prophecy of Isaiah 53 and verse 7. Indeed, all four Gospels point out that Jesus was silent before Pilate. And we look at Isaiah 53 verse 7 and we can agree with that. And I'll just read it. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. Jesus did not say anything, nor did he have to say anything. Let this be a reminder as well, a practical reminder. If you continue to harden your heart towards Jesus, there will be a time when you may try to seek him, but you will not be able to find him and you will not be able to hear him. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Do not harden your heart, the author of Hebrews tells us, more than once. So we see this demonstrative declaration, and then Pilate is distressing and disconcerting. And then thirdly, we see a delegated authority. Thirdly, a delegated authority. Pilate now is ratcheting things up in his conversation. Pilate said to him, you do not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? Pilate is not pleased with this interaction and how it's going. The emphasis here, you won't speak to me? In other words, like, don't you know who I am? You're not going to talk to me? Now Pilate here thinks he's the king. Pilate is fully aware of the power he has as the governor. And it is absolutely unimaginable that someone would stand before him and not answer him. 
So for Jesus to remain silent is probably uncharted territories for Pilate. Never seen this before. He reminds Jesus of his power that he has. Pilate says, I have authority to release you, and I have authority to crucify you. Yet as Leon Morris points out, ultimately he could not avoid responsibility. And these words show that deep down he realized this. Pilate realized this. And Jesus, at this point, does say something. He answers him, corrects him, and this gives us application upon application. Jesus answered, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. You have no authority. It is an authority given by God. So that's how what he's saying, in other words. You have no authority. The authority that you do have is given by God. Again, saying this after he has been scourged and he's standing there before Pilate. He's not saying you, you have authority from Caesar because he's your, he's your, uh, your overseer. No, he, Jesus says, from above. This authority, authority from above. Authority given by God. Not the delegated authority given by Caesar, but the delegated authority given by God. An earthly magistrate. A governor. A king. A president. Can only act as God permits him to. Romans 13, verse 1 says, Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Authority is the right to rule and to govern. Jesus is acknowledging Pilate's authority that has been given to him from above. Now, how Pilate uses and abuses this authority, he will have to answer to God, indeed, he has. James Boyce tells us, Pilate pronounced wrongly, as we know, but he had authority to make the pronouncement even if, he, if, if it was wrong. His authority was from God. Jesus did not suggest that it be wrestled from him because he had made even so great an error as condemning the Son of God. Application for us as Christians, as we consider obeying authorities. We are to obey the civil authorities that God has put in place. This means policies that we agree with and policies that we disagree with. We all have to pay taxes. We may disagree with how the funds are used and the amount of taxes we have to pay. But when Jesus was asked a question about paying taxes, for an example, what did Jesus say and do? Well, 
Matthew 22, verse 17 tells us. The crowd said to him, tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their malice and said, why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the poll tax. And they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Then he said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and God the things that are God's. And hearing this, they were amazed. And leaving him, they went away. As an example for us, we are obligated to obey the laws and the rulers over us. There are exceptions. But before we get to the exceptions, let us consider our responsibilities as Christians. We have been given a type of governing structure in America that if run properly, the system has a superiority to it and it can be a fair system. There is a constitution and there are supposed to be checks and balances. Notice the the nuanced statements, as I say, supposed to be, and there is in place, if followed. We as citizens have been given the responsibility and a privilege to exercise our responsibility to vote, to replace wicked rulers, and to seek to have unjust laws repealed. Now, I will not stand here this morning and tell you who you must vote for in 2024. Now all the ears are listening. However, I can tell you, professing Christian, if you align yourself with a political party or a political candidate that openly is anti-God and anti-Christian, and openly for the destruction of babies in the womb, and openly advocating for transgenderism, then you are in grave error, to put it mildly, and you are voting against biblical principles, and you are standing with wickedness. And I am being gentle here. I could say this more strongly. There are limits to the obligation of a Christian to obey the secular authorities. The civil magistrate is to stay in their lane. No governing authority has a right to tell Christians to disobey God and to disobey God's word. Specifically, when secular authorities seek to forbid the preaching of the gospel, We must not comply. We must stand. There are times when Christians must act in civil disobedience. Again, we are called to the great commission, not the great omission. We're speaking of authority. Jesus says, All authority has been given to me to Jesus in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The preaching of the gospel, the making of disciples, and to have church as God commanded it, no authority can tell us we cannot do that. We obey God rather than man, as Acts chapter 5, verse 29 says, we stand as Peter and John would. Richard Phillips again reminds us of Nazi Germany. He says this, One Christian who refused to comply with sinful Nazi edicts was Martin Niemöller, a pastor who continued to preach the gospel and to speak out against government atrocities. A Christian friend once visited him in jail and urged him to stay silent about Nazi abuses. Listen, if Niemöller would agree to this, his freedom would be secured. So his friend says, why are you in jail? Niemöller answered to his friend, why aren't you in jail? Likewise, Christians in America have a moral obligation to righteously oppose the slaughter of unborn children, to speak out against racism, to oppose government and corporate corruption, and to stand against their evils, staunchly refusing to participate in such sins. He continues, Phillips continues, Moreover, as our governments pass so-called hate crime laws, forbidding Christians to speak out against moral perversions such as homosexuality, Christians must continue to speak God's truth in love, accepting the unjust consequences of breaking such laws. I was reminded as I watched 180 again, the film put out by Living Waters. It's free online. It's about 35, 40 minutes of your time. I encourage you to watch it. Children, get your parents' permission to watch it. But at the end of World War II, non-Nazi officials made some of the locals go through the concentration camps after all of the atrocities had taken place. What was happening in their backyard? The, you could see the, the, in, the, in the black and white film them walking in with a smile on their face, because this is a camera, this is new to them, and here these German people were now, and they're walking through, and they're getting ready to go into the concentration camp to see this for their own eyes. And when they come out of it, their disposition is far different. They had no idea what was going on in their backyard, or they needed to see it with their own eyes. Perhaps some of them had their head in the sand. There is murder going on, brothers and sisters in Christ, in our backyard. Let us not keep our head in the sand. We stand boldly as we ought. And it's not about being arrested or trying to be disruptive or having confrontation. But it's a problem when Christians remain silent and neutral. How is that different than a bystander? 
How can one confess Christ and remain neutral and quiet? Fourthly, a definitive responsibility. A definitive responsibility. For this reason, Jesus says, he continues to Pilate, you have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Pilate is getting ready to have Jesus crucified. Pilate is getting ready to make the decision not to release the Son of God. And that is on him. And Jesus is saying, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Now, Pilate, he was an evil man. He was a wicked sinner, and his his actions were sinful towards God. But there was a sin that was worse than Pilate's. The one who delivered him to Jesus. Well, specifically, it was Caiaphas who was responsible. And who was there not speaking up when Caiaphas made the decision to take him to Pilate? It was all the religious leaders there as well, right, who were beating up Jesus, slapping him around, spitting on him. They were responsible. And they had the Old Testament scriptures. They delivered Jesus to Pilate. Their sins indeed were very great, much greater. Most likely Caiaphas is in mind here specifically, but not just him, the, the Sanhedrin. Also, we could expand this further to the crowds that were there. The ones shouting Jesus to be crucified, they were all guilty. So there are sins, of course, that are worse than others, that have worse consequences, that are more evil in degree. The Jewish leaders had the Old Testament scriptures. They had knowledge. Their sin was much much greater than a Roman who did not have the scriptures. You that are here under the sound of my voice, who know the truth, some perhaps just in your head intellectually, to sin against God and to reject Jesus Christ after hearing these truths, you commit a greater sin than the pagan out there who has never been exposed to the gospel to the teaching of the Lord. They sin, yes. They sin in much ignorance. They sin against the God they know exists. But anyone here who does not know Christ, who has been hearing the word of God preached, you sin in the knowledge of the truth. All sin or any sin is enough to condemn a person to hell. There are sins that are greater in degree. Jesus just said this. And greater in degree of punishment as well. But know this. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And if you're not a true worshiper of Jesus Christ this morning, of the true Jesus, the one 
Son of God, if you're not worshiping him, you are an idol worshiper, for all men worship something. If we're not worshiping God the way he commands, then we are worshiping an unknown God. To press further with the law, if you have anger in your hearts, you are a murderer in God's eyes. If you've ever stolen anything, regardless of the value, you are a thief in God's eyes. Sinfully desiring something that is not yours, you are a coveter at heart. Such were some of us. As many of us were reminded yesterday at the men's breakfast, twice in God's providence, these two men had something similar to say, one similar thing and they had not spoken about what they were going to speak on, one by way of testimony bringing in the scriptures and one brother bringing in the devotional for us. In a nutshell, we need to see our sin with the holiness of God as the backdrop. We are all great sinners, but what great Savior indeed we have. The one who stood before Pilate was the one who would hang on the cross. The one who was silent before his accusers is the one who cried out, it is finished, when he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. The one who offered up his life is the one who was rejected by man. The wages of sin is death. In Christ, there is eternal life. The one who paid the ransom for sinners, who bore the wrath of God that sinners like us deserved, the one who gave up his life and died on that cross, is not silent now. His call, his plea, is for all to repent and believe, to call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, redemption is a greater work even than creation, and especially when we consider the way which God has achieved it. Even though the sending of his only begotten son in this world, in all the marvel and wonder and the miracle and of the incarnation, but above all in delivering him up to the death upon the cross. This is the supreme thing that sinful fallen man can be redeemed and restored and ultimately the whole of creation also. Hallelujah, what a savior, what a redeemer. Let's pray. Father, we ask this day that you would impress these things by the Holy Spirit upon our minds and upon our hearts. Correct all of us where needed, Lord. Apply the balm where needed. Encourage us, O God, we pray. Help us, O Lord. Thank you, O God, for redeeming sinners like us for your glory. 
as we consider these things this morning for a moment in Jesus' name.